And with that, do make sure you have those Bibles uh, and open them, please, to Luke chapter 19. Some of you have access to our uh, impact page on Facebook. Uh, you can find the message notes there, uh, or you can just pull out a piece of paper and a pen so you can jot down some notes along the way. Uh, this is a good one, but you're not going to be able to memorize everything I share with you in this message. So I do encourage you to take some notes along the way. This message is really really important. This morning, I feel led to tackle uh, one of the most important topics that we as followers of Christ could ever tackle together, and it's the subject of leading people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is the first of several messages I'll be sharing this month in this series. I'm calling this series, Seek and Save the Lost. Today is part one. We're going to be in Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Well, uh, before we dive into that passage, I want to share with you why this has been so heavy on my heart. It was just about a week ago, uh, the last day of 2022, December 31st, I was scrolling through Facebook on my phone and a reel popped up uh, from one of my friends on Facebook, a reel from a pastor, a little 60 second clip from a sermon that he had given. I kind of recognized the pastor, but I didn't know who he was. But I listened to this 60-second 60 60 clip, and I've got to be honest with you, it cut to the heart. It was really, really convicting. I did some research and found out that this clip was part of a sermon given at least 20 years ago by Dr. Adrian Rogers, who had served for over 30 years as the senior pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. He passed in 2005, but several years before he passed, he shared this sermon. I want to share with you this 60-second clip, and I'd love to know how it impacts you. Most of the people in our church are not active soul winners. That's tragic. You say, but pastor, I give my money. I don't care how much money you give. If you're not endeavoring to bring souls to Christ, you're not right with God. You say, well, I teach. I don't care how eloquently you teach. If you're not trying to bring souls to Jesus, you're not right with God. You say, well, I attend faithfully. I don't care how much you attend. If you're not trying to bring souls to Jesus Christ, you're not right with God. Well, you say, I live a clean moral life. I don't care how circumspectly you walk. If you're not endeavoring to bring souls to Jesus Christ, you're not right with God. Andrew Murray said there are two classes of Christians, soul winners and backsliders. You're one or the other. If you don't have a passion to see people come to the Lord Jesus Christ, I wonder if you know the Jesus that I know. Wow. I want to know, is he right? I have to know, is he right? Listen again to some of these things he said in this little clip. Most of the people in our church are not active soul winners. Is Adrian Rogers right? Is he right? I hope not. I look at our baptisms this past year in 2022. We had 17 baptisms here at Impact, and that's a wonderful thing. 17 souls drawn closer to Christ. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? But honestly... Most of us in our church had nothing to do with those 17 baptisms. What about this next statement that he made? 
If you are not endeavoring to bring souls to Christ, you're not right with God. Is he right? Once again, I hope not, because if he is right, most of us will have a a lot to answer for on Judgment Day. But I'm afraid he is right. Even if we give our tithes and attend church faithfully and live clean, moral lives, if we're not actively leading non-Christians to Jesus Christ, he's right. We're not right with God. He quoted Andrew Murray, who, by the way, was a 19th century pastor and well-respected author. Andrew Murray said this well over 150 years ago. He said there are two classes of Christians, soul winners and backsliders. You're one or the other. Is he right? Is he right? Is it true that if I'm not actively leading people to Christ, I myself am drifting away from Christ? And then Adrian Rogers ended with this statement. If you don't have a passion to see people come to the Lord Jesus Christ, I wonder if you know the Jesus that I know. Is he right to wonder? Is he right to wonder? Well, I want you to turn once again in your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 19. Jesus did a whole lot of soul winning during his three-year ministry as We'll see in this passage, winning souls for his Father in heaven was one of the main reasons why Jesus came to earth in the first place. In fact, it was the main reason. He came to seek and save the lost. And one of those lost souls that he came to seek and save was a despised tax collector named Zacchaeus. So please follow along as I read in Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed Jesus gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He's gone to to be the guest of a, a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. May God bless us as we read and study his word today. Well, as Jesus entered the city of Jericho, uh, he was on his way to Jerusalem for the very last time. Jericho was just about 18 miles east of the city of Jerusalem. And in just a few days, Jesus would crest the Mount of Olives riding that little donkey. And the crowds would be waving the palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That day we know is the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. And just five days after Palm Sunday, Jesus would be arrested and beaten to within an inch of his life and nailed to a cross to die. 
So here in Luke 19, as Jesus enters Jericho, he has his sights set on Jerusalem. That's why it says in verse 1 that he was passing through. Jesus was likely at the height of his popularity. Uh, Many Bible scholars believe that on this particular day, hundreds, if not thousands of people were gathered on the streets in Jericho following Jesus. Except for the absence of flowers, it probably had the look and feel of the Rose Parade. Uh, Everything was uh, full of buzz and excitement. There were wall-to-wall people, uh, lots of enthusiasm, plenty of chatter. But of the thousands of people in the Jericho crowd that day who were excited to see Jesus, only one of them is highlighted here in Luke 19, a tax collector named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus wasn't just a tax collector. According to verse 2, he was a chief tax collector. Well, what is a chief tax collector? I'm so glad you asked. In Jesus' day, a chief tax collector was the head honcho of the local tax collectors. And so the tax collectors in a district, here in this case in Jericho, had to report to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was the overseer and the manager of the other tax collectors in Jericho. He was responsible for making sure all the taxes owed to the Roman government were paid in full. And especially there in the city of Jericho, there were a whole lot of taxes to be collected. Jericho was like the Puerta Vallarta of Israel. It was a beautiful city in Jesus' day. The the weather was great year-round, so politicians and wealthy merchants built enormous palaces in and around the city of Jericho. The city had amenities that were very rare in other parts of Israel, uh, swimming pools and gardens and bathhouses and a theater. The first century historian Josephus describes Jericho this way. Josephus is the most respected of the first century Jewish historians. He writes, Jericho is the most fruitful country of Judea, which bears a vast number of palm trees besides the balsam tree. He who should pronounce this place to be divine would not be mistaken. I think Josephus was pretty impressed with the place. As you might imagine, there were lots of taxes to be collected in this wealthy town. And one of the main men put in charge of collecting these taxes was none other than Zacchaeus. Most Jews in Jesus' day hated tax collectors. You've probably heard that before. Uh, They hated tax collectors because they were viewed as lying thieves and traitors. Rome had recruited these Jewish men who would force their fellow Jews to give all the taxes that Rome said they owed. And so tax collectors were hated throughout Israel. Tax collectors uh, earned their paycheck from Rome, but not only that, it was well known that tax collectors would extort their own people to pad their own wallets. If Rome demanded that a a certain Jew uh, pay a tax of three denarii, it was very common for the tax collector responsible for that person's taxes to say, "Uh, you owe four or five denarii. And guess what they would do with the extra? They would give the three denarii to Rome and pocket the balance for themselves. And it was well known that tax collectors did this, so they were hated. They were despised. And if regular tax collectors were despised and hated by the Jewish people, you'd better believe that Zacchaeus, as a chief tax collector, was despised and hated even more. Well, we're told at the end of verse 2 that Zacchaeus was wealthy. 
That's probably an understatement. He was loaded. (laughs) It becomes clear in the passage a little bit later that he was full of all sorts of possessions, as his house was, and it was pretty clear later on that he had all sorts of money because he had overcharged a whole lot of people. Well, we learn a couple more details about Zacchaeus in verse 3. Uh, for starters, he wanted to see who Jesus was. It's another way of saying he wanted to know what all the fuss was about as these thousands of people are gathered in the streets following uh, this rabbi from Galilee. He, he was wanting to find out what all the fuss was. And secondly, we find out in verse 3 that Zacchaeus was short. He was short. I did a little research and found out that historians believe in Palestine and in Israel in Jesus' day, the average male adult was about five foot five inches tall. So shorter than most American men today. Uh, the average man in Jesus' day, about five five. And so if he was considered to be a short man, we could imagine he was probably like four foot ten. So he's a pretty short dude. Certainly today, but even in his own day. And so he was a a really short little guy. It reminds me of that old Sunday school song. Maybe some of you learned as a kid. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. Oh, he climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in that tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today, for I'm going to your house today. Everyone, join in. Verse 2. Just kidding. Oh, I remember learning that years and years ago. And you know what's great about that song? That little song, in just a few seconds, took us all the way to verse (laughs) 6. Some of you might think, Dane, sometimes you spend too long on the first few verses of a chapter. Uh, Maybe just sing the song and, and, and get to the next part. Well... That little song does take us all the way to verse 6. And notice, this is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus actually invites himself to someone's house. Maybe he did it other times, but this is the only time we have it recorded in the Gospels. That's not something we typically do in our culture. Hey, I'm going to spend a night or two at your house. Uh, Congratulations, you get to host me. You know, we wouldn't do that in our culture typically, but it was rather common in Jesus' day, and it was considered to be a great honor if a famous rabbi chose you to be his host. And that's what happens here. Jesus chose Zacchaeus to be his host. And when Zacchaeus hears Jesus' invitation, he is thrilled. According to verse 6, he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. But then the murmuring began. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner! How could Jesus do this? I like how a few other translations put it. The New Living Translation says it this way. But the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. And I like how verse 7 is paraphrased in the message paraphrase. It says it this way. Everyone who saw the incident was indignant and grumped. Not grumbled, grumped. What business does he have getting cozy with this crook? 
<laughs> I think that's what was going on in their minds. This guy's a crook. He's a chief tax collector. What business does Jesus, if he's a self-respecting rabbi, have going to stay at this crook's house? Well, friends, if you make the decision to be a soul winner instead of a backslider, you need to understand this from the get-go. Many people around you won't like it, and they'll start to grumble. Even some of those you think should be supportive of what you're doing, family members and even fellow Christians in your own church, they're going to start to grumble. If you knock on your neighbor's doors with the intention of talking to them about Jesus or inviting them to church, when some Christians find out about this, they'll start to grumble a little bit. If you strike up a conversation with someone about Jesus at Walmart, some Christians will grumble. If you, because of your desire to win souls to Christ, invite over to your house for dinner a lesbian or a registered sex offender or a drug addict, I guarantee you some Christians are going to grumble. They're going to murmur under their breath, what on earth is she thinking? What the hell is he doing? And that's the point exactly. We're doing it with hell in mind, right? We're doing it with hell in mind. Hell is a real place with real flames and real agony and real hopelessness. And we don't want anyone to go there. Most Christians don't get that. Most Christians won't get that. But if you accept Christ's call to follow in his footsteps as a soul winner, you do get that. Regardless of how many people question you or criticize you or grumble about you behind your back, you're going to risk your reputation to reach people for Christ because the thought of that person going to hell haunts you much more than the criticism of those around you. It seems clear that some time passed between verses 6 and 7 here in Luke chapter 19. Most likely a few hours passed between Verses 6 and 7. Jesus went home with Zacchaeus and ate dinner with Zacchaeus and invited him to make the most important decision of his life, to put his trust in Jesus as his Savior and Lord, to repent of his sin and to live a brand new life as a follower of Jesus. And Zacchaeus' response in verse 8 is remarkable. Look at verse 8 again with me. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Wow. In Jesus' day, it was considered extremely generous for someone to give 20% of their possessions to the poor. But Zacchaeus doesn't stop at 20%. Notice what he does. He doubles that. He more than doubles that. He gives 50% of his possessions to the poor, then and there. According to the Old Testament law, if a Jew confessed to stealing money from someone, after that Jew confessed to stealing from someone, it was required by law that that Jewish man or woman give back the money they had stolen plus an additional 20%. Well, Zacchaeus doesn't stop there, does he? He doesn't just give back what he had stolen plus 20%. He gives 300% extra. 
he gives back to anyone he had stolen from four times the amount that had been stolen. He was the chief tax collector, so he had some very good records of who he had collected taxes from. And he went back through his books and committed to give back four times the amount that was overcharged on his watch. Wow. Jesus responds in verse 9, Today, salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. Well, many people read this verse and mistakenly think that Zacchaeus was saved because of his good works, giving half of his possessions to the poor, uh, paying back four times over uh, what he had stolen from anyone. But no, no, Zacchaeus was not saved because of his good works. He wasn't saved by his good works. He was actually saved before his good works. A selfish, greedy, hell-bound sinner like Zacchaeus never would have done what he does here in verse 8. The only reason he did it is because he was a new creation. The old had gone and the new had come. Amen? He was a new creation in Christ. That's why he did what he did here in verse 8. The old Zacchaeus never would have done what he did. But the new Zacchaeus did do it because he was brand new. At some point between verses 7 and 8, Zacchaeus had trusted in Jesus Christ as his Savior. He repented of his sin and he began following Jesus as Lord of his life. What we see in verse 8 is simply the fruit of repentance. It's the amazing fruit that we oftentimes see. Not exactly as it's played out in Zacchaeus' situation, but we'll see it in many other very miraculous ways in the lives of those who experience new life in Christ. And after declaring out loud that Zacchaeus was now saved, Jesus speaks these glorious words in verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Wow! The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. When people ask the question, why did Jesus come to earth? Heaven sounds so much better than this place. Why did he come? Here in Luke 19.10, Jesus gives a very simple yet profound answer to that question. Why did I come? I'll tell you why I came. I came to seek and save people who are lost. I came for men and women who used to be on the narrow road but have lost their way. I came for those who are hopeless and have lost the will to live. I came for teenagers who don't fit in and feel like they have no purpose in life. I came for those who, by the world standards, are successful, but in reality are spiritually bankrupt. I came for those who are lost in their sin and will spend eternity in hell unless I throw them a lifeline. Why did I come to earth? I came because you needed me to come. And everyone you know needed me to come. I came for you. And I came for them. The Son of Man came to seek and to save those who were lost. Wow. Jesus came because you and I desperately needed Him to come. There's something really profound about what Jesus says here in verse 10. It's easy to miss. In the immediate context, Jesus is speaking of seeking and saving Zacchaeus, right? 
I came to seek and save what was lost. That's on the heels of Zacchaeus repenting and turning to Christ and experiencing salvation. Jesus has just said, I tell you the truth, salvation has come to this house today. And so the immediate context is Jesus came to seek and save Zacchaeus. Now that's pretty remarkable because of what we read back in verses 3 and 4. Back in verses 3 and 4, Zacchaeus thought that he was the one doing the seeking. When he heard all the commotion in town and the crowds gathering around and talking about Jesus having come into town, Zacchaeus runs to the crowd. He runs to where he thinks Jesus is going to be in just a few minutes. And then he climbs the sycamore fig tree looking for Jesus, hoping to see him with his own eyes. And maybe if he's lucky enough to actually be able to have a a little bit of a, a talk with Jesus. Zacchaeus in verses 3 and 4 believes that he is doing the seeking. But the truth is, Jesus was seeking Zacchaeus long before Zacchaeus was ever seeking Jesus. And the same is true for me. The same is true for you. And the same is true for anyone we know who has not yet accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Jesus has been seeking us long before we ever began seeking Him. So aspiring soul winners, I need you to listen up. We don't sit back and wait for someone around us to express an interest in Jesus. We bring Jesus to them because Jesus always seeks us before we ever seek Him. Whether it's your family member or your friend or your next door neighbor or your coworker or a perfect stranger, Jesus is seeking them long before they ever seek him. So it's your job to make the introduction. Don't wait for them to ask about Jesus. Make the introduction because Jesus has been seeking that person you're thinking about for a long, long time. Well, I want to share with you Ten practical steps to becoming a soul winner instead of a backslider. We're going to be talking more about some of these over these next few weeks together, but I want to share these ten steps with you. If you are convicted today with the notion that you lean more toward being a backslider than being a soul winner because you rarely share your faith, you rarely have participated in recent years in leading someone uh, to baptism or leading someone to rededicate their life to Christ, if you realize that you have not been a soul winner I want to share with you these 10 very important steps to becoming a soul winner. Number one, this is so important, pray for yourself. Pray for yourself. Ask God to give you a burden for lost souls and to choose you to be a soul winner. In Isaiah chapter 6, God needed someone to go to his chosen people, Israel, and urge them to repent and turn back to God. And in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, the Lord Almighty asked the question in Isaiah's presence, Whom shall I send and who will go out for us? And like a a child who had been asked by his teacher, who would like a free ticket to Disneyland? Isaiah speaks up and says, Ooh, 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 here am I, Lord. Send me. Send me. Wow. Wow. He wanted more than anything else to be chosen by God, 
to carry out the message of God to a people who desperately needed to hear it. We should have that same kind of enthusiasm to lead lost people to Christ. Step number two, pray for others. Step number one was pray for yourself. Step two, pray for others. Pray by name for the salvation of people you know who need Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, how many of you know some non-Christians? All our hands should go up, right? We all know non-Christians, maybe in our family, maybe neighbors, co-workers, whoever. We all know non-Christians. Now let me ask you this. How many of you pray for non-Christians by name on a regular basis? How many of you pray for those non-Christians you know by name on a regular basis? Asking God to soften their hard hearts. Asking God to open their closed minds and draw him unto himself so that they will be saved. Would you please begin doing this every day? Would you start doing that? Whether you are young or old or male or female or a college athlete or flat on your back in bed, whatever your situation, whatever your age, if you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, would you use the time God has given you to pray for those you know who need Christ? Pray for the salvation of unbelievers. And you'd better believe that the prayers of a righteous man or woman are powerful and effective. Sometimes as we get older and can't do all the physical activities we used to be able to do, we wonder, well, what use am I to the kingdom? The most powerful thing you can do for the kingdom of God is to pray. And especially pray for the salvation of those you know who need Christ. Those prayers are, in fact, powerful and effective. Step number three, memorize a few strategic Bible verses. I want to give you a few examples here, five examples. Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, John 3.16, Ephesians 2.8-9, and Acts 2.38. They're short verses. It's not difficult for you to memorize these. Romans 3.23, many of you know already, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Ephesians 2.8-9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And finally, Acts 2.38 Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. These are simple, powerful gospel verses. Several of you probably already know two or three of these. It's so common as I talk to adults about memorizing scripture to hear Christian adults say, well, I can't memorize worth a darn anymore. I used to be able to, but I can't anymore. Do you know why most Christian adults are terrible at memorizing scripture? The reason most Christian adults are terrible at memorizing Scripture is because most Christian adults don't even try to memorize Scripture. If they tried, they would find themselves much more successful than they may have thought. So I'm asking you to try. Hide these verses on your heart, and God will be equipping you 
to more effectively share your faith with others and win souls for Christ. You can do it. Step number four. Learn a simple, clear gospel presentation and practice sharing it. This is so important. Next Sunday, I'll be sharing with you a simple gospel presentation that you can learn very quickly and you can begin sharing within minutes. I'm excited to share that with you next week. And if you learn these Bible verses I just shared with you in step number three, it'll make it even easier to learn this little presentation I'm going to share with you next week. This gospel presentation is powerful, and I want to equip you to be more effective than ever leading souls to a saving knowledge of Christ. And over the next couple Wednesdays, there's something else going on I'm excited about. This Wednesday, we're going to finish our study of the of the book of Second Peter. But the Wednesday after that, these final two Wednesdays in the month, I'm going to shift our Wednesday night Bible study over to becoming a soul-winning clinic. We're going to do this soul-winning clinic the final two Wednesdays of the month, 6 p.m. at the church. It'll also be available on Zoom. And I am going to share with you exactly how this works, how you can share this gospel presentations to lead others to Christ. And I'm going to give you who attend an opportunity to practice sharing it with other Christians in a safe environment that's not nearly as intimidating as going off on the first day and sharing it with a non-Christian. And so I want to equip you with not only the tools for how to share Christ effectively and win souls, but I want to show you how to do that and give you an opportunity to practice leading people to Christ. And so I'm excited to share this with you, not only next Sunday, but in the upcoming Wednesdays as well. Uh, number five, the fifth step, always be packing. I like it. I like wording it that way. Always be packing. Gospel tracts, church invitation cards, a good Christian book, a link to a website, etc., etc. Always be packing. Have something with you that you can hand to someone or give them as a resource to be able to read for themselves the gospel. And so uh, it always amazes me how many people in our church don't pack these simple little impact invitation cards. How easy is that? We purposely made these super small, the size of a business card. Guys, you can stick them in your wallets. I oftentimes have them in my back pocket. Ladies, they're easy to slide into your purse. We put them in the glove compartment of our cars. Super easy to have these handy and to be able to give to someone who you find out at Walmart, Target, wherever. They don't have a church home. Give them an invitation. Most Christians in our church don't even invite their friends and family and neighbors to church on a regular basis. How sad is that? You need to be packing. Have these cards on hand. We've got hundreds of them at the church. We'll get them to you if you need us to mail them to you or whatever. Just let me know. You need these invitations. I also ordered this week one of the best gospel tracks I've ever come across. I ordered a 1,000 copies of this gospel track. It's in the form of a little comic strip, and it's written at a level that kids, teens, and adults will all be engaged with what is said on that little track and can be understanding the gospel in a matter of minutes. It's a wonderful little track. We're going to have those arrive in the next few days, have those available next weekend, and I want to make those available for you to have on hand so you can hand to someone, a neighbor, a friend, or a family member, and in their spare time they can read a clear gospel presentation. 
It's a wonderful tool to have. We need to have these resources. Many of you are on social media. There's so many different opportunities on social media to reach people with the gospel. And there's so many resources available to us on the Internet that we can share with those who need to hear the message of Christ. Always have a a website in mind. Always have a card on hand, a track nearby, so that we can reach out to those who need to hear the gospel. And they don't just hear it from us. They can read it in their spare time as well as we get that into their hands. Well, step number six, live a consistent Christian life. Remember to humbly love, learn, and serve in plain view of others. The simple truth is, if you are a, uh, if you as a Christian uh, like to, to be able to see your people uh, that you know saved, your friends, your family, and others, if you want to see them saved, you can't live like hell in front of them. Right? We can't live like hell in front of our family and friends and neighbors. If we do live like hell in front of them, they're not going to have any interest in hearing from us the message about how they can go to heaven. We will have lost all credibility. If we want them to listen to a message about heaven, our lifestyles have to reflect some of the beauty and the love and the grace and the mercy and the strength and the patience and the perseverance of heaven. Step number seven, be intentional about building relationships with non-Christians and take the initiative to steer conversations to Christ. We'll talk about this a little bit more next week, but suffice it to say that Christ has called you to take the initiative. You need to take the initiative to build relationships with non-Christians and you need to take the initiative to steer conversations to Christ. Don't make, don't wait for people to befriend you. Don't wait for them to bring Jesus up or them to bring church up. He expects us to take the initiative. Remember the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Jesus said, go and make disciples. He didn't say, simply open your doors and wait for them to come. He has called you to go. Step number eight, post gospel-centered content on social media. Don't just post feel-good Bible verses. Post scriptures that issue a clear call to Christ and share links to some of the excellent gospel-centered content available online. I touched on that a few minutes ago, but I thought this needed to stand alone as its own step. This is such a beautiful resource. Yes, the Internet uh, is also a moral cesspool, but there is so much good stuff on the Internet as well that we can share with people who are spending countless hours on Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or any number of social media sites, use some of those wonderful resources, share those links on Facebook and on Instagram, introduce people to some of this excellent teaching that explains the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tech-savvy soul winners tap the Internet as a resource. Number nine, step number nine, bring at least one non-Christian with you to church every month this year. Now, for some of you who are perfectly able to get back to church in person, you're going to need to do a pre-step here. You're going to need to get back to church yourselves. Now, some of you are housebound. You can't go to an in-person service. I get that. We're going to continue these online services for you. But for those of you dragging your feet and using any number of excuses for not coming back to church in person, one of the reasons you're not winning souls is because you're not in church yourself. 
And so you need to get back, and I want to give you this challenge to get others with you. Even if it's the same non-Christian you bring with you every month this year, I'm perfectly fine with that. Just make sure you're bringing at least one non-Christian to church every week. If you are housebound and you cannot come in person, then connect them to this broadcast. Reach out to at least one new non-Christian every month and encourage them to watch the broadcast with you on a Sunday morning. If that doesn't seem like it's going to work for you, invite them over to dinner at your house. A different non-Christian, or maybe the same one, once a month, every month this year. In our homes, around our dinner table, and in church, we can introduce people to Jesus Christ. And you know that the church, as we come together, especially in person, is a wonderful, safe place for people to hear the gospel and make decisions for Christ. The church is kind of like an incubator for pre-Christians and baby Christians that have just accepted Christ. For pre-Christians, they will hear the gospel and it will, they will be completely encouraged as they make that decision to accept Christ. And once they do, as baby Christians, they will be in a supportive environment where their new faith is nurtured and they can grow in their faith. Oh, the church is a beautiful incubator for pre-Christians and baby Christians. Do not miss the opportunity God has given you to take advantage of the church to help lead your friends and family to Christ. Finally, number 10, two by two. This is critical. Work together with at least one other soul winner to carry out these prior nine steps. This is so important. Jesus' evangelism strategy was to send his disciples in pairs of two. We'll talk about this next week, Lord willing. Two is better than one. So today, ideally in the next few minutes, I want you to choose a soul-winning partner to work with you and carry out these nine soul-winning steps. Ideally, husbands with their wives, if you're both saved, and if you're both serious about being soul winners. If not, then I encourage boy-boy, girl-girl. Ladies, choose another Christian sister in Christ to be your partner in carrying out these nine steps over the weeks to come. Gentlemen, pick a brother in Christ to be your fellow partner soul winner, to work together to lead others to Christ. God has given us this charge this year, not just to see 17 people baptized, but so many more than that led to Christ as all of us take seriously our God-given responsibility to rise above backsliding, to becoming true soul winners for Jesus Christ. It's not just the pastor's job. It's your job. Let's win souls for Jesus Christ this year. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for coming to seek and save the lost. Please forgive us for being self-absorbed. Forgive us for being lazy. Forgive us for being too scared to simply reach out and, and share Christ with someone who's going to hell without Him. Lord, we've been more worried about what the people around us think of us than we are about what's going to happen in eternity for those that don't hear the gospel message. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would change us. I pray that we would come to you, Lord, today asking you to give us a heart for souls and to choose us to be the one to share the message of Jesus 
with those around us. Help us to take seriously the call to pray for our non-Christian friends and family members and neighbors every day. Lord, to, to call out to you to soften their hearts and open their minds and lead them to salvation. Lord Jesus, help us to take seriously the opportunities we have to hand an invitation, to car, a card invitation to someone, inviting them to church, or, or Lord, to hand out a Bible track, a gospel track, or to simply post something online, Lord, that points people to the gospel that could save them. Help us, Lord, to take seriously the charge to link arms with another brother or sister in Christ, to do this together. Lord Jesus, help us to live consistent godly lifestyles in plain view of those around us who want to know the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian in the real world. Help us, O God, to be vigilant about doing these things and living out this charge you've given us today to be soul winners for Christ. And as we do what you've called us to do, we know that you will bless it. And we'll see a great ingathering of souls this year at Impact Christian Church. Not for us to pat ourselves on the back, but Lord, to bring glory to you. Because we know that more than anything else, you want your children to come home. Help us to be a part of that great mission and calling. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I am so thankful that you hung on for this challenging message. I just want to say it one last time. Don't be a backslider. Be a soul winner. Maybe you have 50 years of life left on earth. Maybe you only have a few months. I don't know. But whatever amount of time God has given you, use it to pray for souls and to lead souls to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I look forward to sharing with you a little bit more about how you can do that next Sunday. God bless.